hell. Oh, my word. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 23, and we're going to work our way through chapter 3, verse 6. Mark, chapter 2, verse 23. It's page 708. 708, if you're going to use a pew Bible this morning. 708 in the pew Bible. Mark, chapter 2, picking it up at verse number 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. As they walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And then he gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them, and in anger he said, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, uh, help us to understand the meaning and what it is that Christ has really come to do and accomplished for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, who is Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, who he is has enormous implications for us. Implications such as our purpose in life. Implications such as the reality of life after death. Implications such as our relationship with God. There are many implications regarding who Jesus Christ is. And by the way, you know, Jesus was never, he was never shy about vocalizing who he is. One of the, um, one of the most striking features about Jesus is that he was constantly Pointing the attention to himself. Let me give you an example. Jesus didn't walk around and say things like, let me tell you the truth. He said, I am the truth. He didn't say things like, well, let me point you the way. He said, I am the way. He didn't say things like, well, in the end times, there will be a resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection. 
You know, people are supposed to believe in God, but Jesus said, you need to believe in me. Jesus was very vocal about who he is and always pointing attention to himself. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to make a claim that is so outrageous that the religious leaders have no word for it. And what he says about himself and, and about the Sabbath day is going to escalate the hostility toward him and the religious leaders to a whole new level. You know, we're studying the life of Christ and we're, we're doing so through the gospel of Mark. And in today's passage, Jesus clashes with the religious leaders. He clashes over the fact that his disciples are eating grain. Walking along and picking up grain and eating. And then he'll clash with the religious leaders over the fact that he heals a man in a synagogue service. Now, ordinarily, these are not really big deals. It's not really what he does. It's when he does it. Because both of these clashes are over the Sabbath day. And you have to understand, the Sabbath day was the flagship of their religion. It was, the, uh, it was the crown jewel of their religion. And it was the one thing that they guarded and protected and revered more than anything else. And here comes Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus is making, really, he's making a frontal assault on the flagship of their religion. And he's going to do it in two ways. He's going to do it by his actions. He's going to demonstrate, as we're going to see here in a minute, demonstrate his authority over the Sabbath day. And then he's going to declare, verbally declare, his authority over the Sabbath day. Really the flagship of their faith. So let's take a look. First of all, Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority over the Sabbath. The disciples... And Jesus, they're, they're walking along, it's the Sabbath day, they're walking along down the road and the disciples are so hungry that they wander off into the field and they begin picking some grain and eating it, which is interesting. And I know this isn't the point of the text, but it is interesting to see the, uh, the simplicity of Jesus' lifestyle and the disciples, because, you know, they, they really relied every day on what they could find that God would provide for them to eat. And so they're wandering, they're, they're walking down the, the road and the disciples go out into the field in such hunger that they begin to pick some grain and eat it. And by the way, and, and this is, first of all, let me say, there's nothing, they're, they're, they're not stealing. In fact, this was quite, legal in fact um, it says in deuteronomy 23 25 he says when you enter your neighbor's grain field you may pick kernels of grain with your hand he said you just cannot put a sickle to the grain in other words you don't go out there with a basket or anything like that but if you're hungry and you're in need you may go out it's perfectly perfectly legal to do that the problem wasn't what what they were doing it was when they were doing it and they were doing this on the Sabbath. And let me read Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall labor 
But on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and the harvest you must rest. And when the religious leaders see the disciples out there, as they would understand it, harvesting the grain, the religious leaders confront Jesus and say, they are harvesting on the Sabbath, clearly violating the law. And by the way, not only were they harvesting, they were uh, threshing the wheat and they were winnowing. And in other words, the disciples, they were harvesting the wheat. They would then rub it together to uh, thresh it to kind of get the kernels off and then they would blow on it and blow the, the kernel off or the, uh, the uh, husk off and then they would eat the kernels. So they were guilty of harvesting, threshing and winnowing this wheat. And in, in the eyes of these religious leaders, this is just flagrant, openly flagrantly violating the, the flagship of their faith. And by the way, today, you know, even today in Israel, the Sabbath day is highly revered. If you've ever been to Israel, try to find a good restaurant that's open on the Sabbath day. They're, they're very, very few and far between. And even to this day, there is a tradition among the uh, Orthodox Jews that Messiah is going to come when all Jews around the world honor the Sabbath day. So it's important to them. And the religious leaders are offended. They believe these disciples are just flagrantly violating the, the law. Now, there's another clash. And this was in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, another time when uh, he went into a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. You know, Mark, or no, uh, Luke in his gospel records the same event. And Luke says that this man, it was the man's right hand. And it's always been interesting how the disciples would always remember these little details that this was the guy's right hand. And I'll explain why I think they remembered that here in a minute. But not only was a man there with a shriveled hand, so were some high-ranking religious leaders, probably from the corporate office in Jerusalem. And they had heard about Jesus, and they've come down here. And in verse number 2, it says some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They weren't there to worship. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus does not disappoint them. He, he gives them more than they bargained for. You know, this man never even asks to be healed. Jesus simply says to the man, why don't you get up and come down front here so everybody can see what I'm going to do. And then Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? How interesting. Has it come to this? Has it come to this that the Sabbath day is actually doing more harm than it is good? That's the point. 
Is it come to the point where the Sabbath day is doing more harm than good? That this poor man has to suffer another day simply because it's the Sabbath. Really? The Sabbath day was ordained by God at creation to be a day of blessing. And religion has turned it into a burden. And what Jesus does next demonstrates before everybody who's there that things are going to change. He is going to change things. Big changes. So Jesus instructs the man, stretch out your arm, he says. And by the way, Jesus is asking him to do something he cannot do. But it says that he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. He was able to stretch it out because the Lord enabled him to stretch it out. Now, you know, in my Bible class, we talked a little bit last week about reading the Bible with some imagination. Now, so I'm I'm thinking about, let's think about this with a little bit of imagination. Do you think that the man then went back and sat down? Or do you think he began to wave it around to everybody and look at this, you know, this is incredible. And then he runs up and down the aisle, shaking hands with everybody up and down the aisle. And I think this is why the disciples remember it was his right hand. Remember, he's going around shaking everybody's hand. And sometimes even two or three times he was so excited. And the, the, the congregation, they're clapping and they're, they're cheering and they're shouting hallelujah and praise God. Well, Except for the religious leaders. They, uh, they're pretty upset about this. And this is quite remarkable to think. That they have put so many regulations on the Sabbath day. That even medical treatment was considered out of bounds. It was work. And it just goes to show that religion... Religion is unbending, religion is unyielding, and what we see here is that this needs to change. And Jesus is, by healing this man, is making the point, things are going to change. So, now let's go look at the second part of this passage. The second thing we want to look at, not only is Jesus demonstrating his authority over the Sabbath by healing the man. Now, he's going to declare his authority. And he's going to make three statements that we're going to look at. And these three statements, these are three claims which leave nobody any question about who he is and what he has come to do. And these three statements, theologically speaking, these statements are epic. Culturally speaking, they're blockbusters. Historically speaking, they are, they are watershed statements. Jesus is about to tell them that the changes that are coming are truly transforming. In fact, to really understand what Jesus is, is about to say, you need to look at chapter 2, verse 21. This really, I think, is the key to what's going on. Chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. 
And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. That's the key. You know what Jesus is saying? He is saying, I'm here not to, uh, not to improve religion. I'm here not to update your religion. I'm here not to modify your religion. I am here to replace religion. I'm here to replace religion with myself. And he's going to do it by going after the flagship of their religion. He's going to go after the crown jewel of their religion. Jesus is about to take this by the jugular, we would say. And, uh, and if you don't think the religious leaders understand what Jesus is doing, did you see how this thing all ends in verse number 6? The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They, they understand what, what he is doing. That he is dismantling the very flagship of their religion and their religion. And to think, the Herodians and the Pharisees, do you realize who these people are? I mean, the Herodians, they're the far left progressive. They are the progressives of the progressives. And then you have the Pharisees. They're the far right. They're the conservatives of the conservatives. These two groups didn't agree on anything. Until now. You know what they agree on? They hate Jesus. And they hate his gospel. And they hate what he is doing. So Jesus is going to give three statements. Three claims that really help us to see who he is and what he's really doing. Notice, he's going to make three arguments. The first one here is the argument from Scripture. Take a look. The disciples are harvesting the grain. And uh, Jesus responds to them. What well, interesting. He responds to them not by saying something like, Listen, you guys have the wrong interpretation to the Sabbath day. He doesn't respond that. What Jesus does is he points them to the Scriptures. Notice he says, um, he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions, by the way, do you think they've ever read that story? Listen, these men that he's talking to, these men knew the Bible, the Old Testament. They knew it frontwards and backwards. They could tell you how many words were in these verses. They could tell you how many letters were in the words of these verses. They could tell you everything about it. But you know what? They didn't understand the meaning of it. They missed the significance of this. Take a look. Jesus answered, have you never read... What David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God. David entered the house of God. And he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he even gave some to his companions. David and his men are on the lamb, we would say. They're hiding. They're running from Saul. They're doing their best to stay one step ahead of Saul and the army. 
And, and they're hungry. They're starving. They haven't eaten in days. And they're just about out of gas, you might say. And so they come to the city of Nob. This is a priestly city. And that is because the tabernacle is there. The, the tabernacle is the house of God or the place where the Israelites would worship. And they come into Nob and David asked the high priest, Do you all have any bread for some weary soldiers? And it's a long story, but basically the priest says, We don't. <laughs> the economy's in a tank right now and things aren't good. There's, he said, The only bread in this town is in the tabernacle. You see, in the tabernacle was a piece of furniture known as the table of showbread. And on that table there were 12 loaves of bread. I wonder why there were 12. Well anyway, <laughs> we all know. But And by the way, that was a symbol of each tribe's fellowship with God. That was the only bread. You know what David does? He goes into the tabernacle and he takes the bread eats it and gives it to his men. Can you imagine that? You talk about stepping over the line. I mean, you talk about being out of bounds and doing something. This doesn't need an instant replay. This guy is so far out of bounds, you can tell. This doesn't even come close. And yet, David and his men appear guiltless. There's there's no consequences. In fact, David goes on to be crowned the next king with all of God's blessings. Now, what's going on here? Now, let me give you the standard interpretation. And this, I think, does have some credibility to it. But the understanding is that um, they are guiltless because they are in God's service, is the argument. Just like the disciples. In fact, Jesus is drawing a parallel. Between David and his men eating the consecrated bread and his disciples who have been harvesting the grain in the fields. And the standard interpretation is that they are not working on... In other words, if you are in service for the Lord, there are exceptions. David gets, gets an exception to the law because he's serving God. And the disciples, they're not really working... They're serving the Lord, and what they're doing is really worship. That's sort of the standard interpretation. Let me suggest something else. I think if you read this a little bit more, read a little bit further down, what you discover in this passage, and this is in 1 Samuel chapter 26. You know what, David, you know what happens when King Saul learns that David has gone into the tabernacle and eaten the bread. You know what King Saul does? And it's not because he ate the bread. It's because the high priest let him do it. King Saul has the high priest executed. The high priest did nothing wrong. But the high priest is executed. The high priest sheds his blood for the sins of David and his men. In the same way that our high priest, who is Jesus, will shed his blood for our sins. When you look at this, the whole picture, you begin to see Jesus in this story. 
Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins. He paid for our sins. He took our place. Have you ever noticed how many times you find Jesus in the Old Testament? I mean, he's on every page, it seems like. And notice also another parallel. A parallel between King Saul and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Here in chapter 3, verse 6, remember, the Pharisees went out. They plotted with the Herodians that they might kill Jesus. And they will succeed. Down the road, they will have Jesus crucified. And his blood will be shed for our sins. You see what Jesus is saying? I think Jesus is drawing this parallel. Because what he is saying is, I am going to be the one who is going to end the harsh, unyielding, unbending law of religion and bring in grace and forgiveness. I am come to replace. He said, I am coming to replace the harsh, unyielding, unbending religion with grace and forgiveness. And I think that's why Jesus points to this passage. First of all, scripturally he says, it points to me. I am replacing religion with myself. There's another argument. Let's look at the next argument. The next argument is the argument from creation. It says, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. When God created this universe, it took him six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. It was a Sabbath. And from the very beginning, the Sabbath day was intended to be a blessing. It was intended, it was a gift from a God who loves us. In fact, it was a gift that we might be physically, be physically rest, uh, mentally restored, uh, and, and recoup ourselves spiritually. The Sabbath day was to be a blessing to us. In fact, it's God's way of protecting us from ourselves. The Sabbath day was meant to protect us from becoming workaholics. The Sabbath day was meant to, to ensure that we always kept our priorities in the right order. God first, family second, and then ourselves. The Sabbath day was when God said, I want to keep you on the right path. In fact, it is the Sabbath day that makes life enjoyable. It is the Sabbath day that really allows us to become everything that God created us to be and to thrive. When Jesus heals this man in the synagogue, he is demonstrating for everybody to see that he has come to restore the Sabbath to its original intent, its original purpose, and that is to be a blessing and the only way to do that is to replace religion you know in our Christian circles Sunday is sort of our our day of rest and and worship and we need that you know God created us in such a way that every seventh day we need to recharge our batteries every seventh day we need to replenish our empty tanks that's just the way God created us he created us to need the Sabbath day so second notice he the argument from creation 
This was God's original intent from, intent from the beginning. And Jesus says, I'm come to restore it. Now there's a third argument. And that is from lordship. Take a look at the argument from lordship. Jesus says, the son of man. And who's the son of man? He is. The son of man is Lord even what? Even over the Sabbath. He says, I am Lord even over the flagship of your religion. I am Lord over the crown jewel of your religion. You know why? Because he says, I am the author of the Sabbath day. I am the creator of the Sabbath day. It was me who rested on that seventh day. It was me who instituted the Sabbath day as a day of rest. And the Sabbath day has always been a ritual. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the reality. He is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, or, or the author says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest. How do you enter God's rest? Through Christ. Faith in Christ. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. We can rest in the work that Christ has done for us. It's not the works that we do for him that saves us. It's the work that he has done and we rest in his work. Jesus said, remember, come unto me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. When Jesus, for example, when he was on the cross, he says, it is finished. What did he mean? He meant salvation. The work of salvation is finished. It is complete. There's nothing else left to do. So stop trying to work for your salvation. It's already been done. Quit trying. Quit trying to please God by doing religious things. God, the Lord has already done the work for us. Do you remember, it's a long time ago, but do you remember the uh, movie Chariots of Fire? All right. You have two main characters. Um, the two main characters, Harold Abrams and Eric Little. And Harold Abrams, um, he saw that gold medal as the one thing that made his life of value. In fact, at one point in the movie, he says this. He says, I have 10, 10 seconds to justify my existence. What he meant by that is 10 seconds to run the 100 yard dash. He says, I have 10 seconds to prove that my life has value, that my life has meaning. And winning that gold medal was everything to him. He goes on to win it, but deep inside, he never finds that sense of value and self-worth. He always continued to feel unworthy and inadequate. But Eric Little was quite the opposite. Eric Little at one point in the movie says, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In other words, Harold, he ran 
hoping to find a sense of, of value and meaning. That his life is valuable and meaningful. But Eric Little ran because he sensed that God had made his life valuable. And he had meaning. Harold Abrams, I think, represents those people who are always trying to prove themselves that they're worthy. That they have value and they purpose. And they're always trying. And they do it through good works. And they're doing it through religious deeds. Hoping that my life will be, that I will be worthy to get into heaven. If I'm good enough, I'm worthy to get there. What a burden that is. Can you imagine the burden people like that carry? Always trying to be worthy enough to get into heaven? The pressure of that is enormous. But Eric Little, I think, represents the person who sits back and says, Hey, I'm resting in God. He's done everything. I know I'm valuable. Let me ask you this. Are you religious? Or are you a Christian? You know what religion says? Religion says, says you have to keep these commandments if you want to be worthy of getting into heaven. Religion says you have to walk the eight paths if you want to be worthy and enough to get into heaven. You have to keep these five pillars if you want to be worthy enough to get into heaven. That's what religion says. Man, the pressure of that. What if you're not good enough? What if you don't measure up? Christianity says... You're already worthy. Because Christ makes you worthy. You put your trust in him. And he gives you all the righteousness that he possessed. And that's what makes you a worthy person. So who is Jesus? He is Lord of the Sabbath. The one in whom we find rest for our souls. That's what we want to take home with us today. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The one in whom we find rest for our souls. You'll never find rest in trying to work your way into heaven. Stop trying to work your way. You'll only find rest in Jesus. He is Lord of the Sabbath. By the way, you notice that in verse number 5, the religious leaders, it says that uh, they had stubborn hearts. I hope you don't have a stubborn heart. Don't have a stubborn heart that says, I'm not going to give in to that. You come to Jesus. You come to him. And he will give you rest you've never experienced before in your life. Because only in him, only in Christ, do you find the rest that you're searching for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these incredible examples of Christ who's come To provide grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's been trying to work their way through religious deeds and goodness, they'll come to the point where they realize they'll never find rest until they find it in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. You are my all in all. Please stand. You are my strength when I am weak. 
You are the treasure that I see. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up I'd be a fool. You are my all in all, Jesus, Lamb of God. Worthy is Your name, Jesus, Lamb of God. my shame I bless your name you are my all in all when I fall down you pick me up when I am dry you fill my cup you are my all in all Jesus with us this morning and if you would like to talk about your faith or have a prayer request uh, I'll be up front our elders are here and we would be glad to talk with you and if you're visiting be sure to pick up a visitor bag we have them in the back if you would like to pick one up let's have a closing prayer together father we are so blessed that you love us and by your grace we are saved for we know that we could never earn or be good enough to get there on our own Thank you for making the way possible. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Say